Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Today we'll be talking about self-defense and when it justifies the use of deadly force. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we have the pleasure of being joined remotely by a criminal law expert, Professor Kimberly Verzan of the University of Pennsylvania School of Law. Kim, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks so much for having me, Joel. Kim, let's jump right in. We all think we know what self-defense is, but what's the definition, I suppose, under the law? Self-defense is what's called an affirmative defense. When someone has done something wrong, they've assaulted someone, they've killed someone, they can come forward with a defense where they say, even though I've committed the crime, you shouldn't punish me. And defenses can be divided into justifications where the person said, I did the right or permissible thing, or excuses where they say, I did the wrong thing, but I'm not blameworthy and you shouldn't punish me for it. So do I have it right that self de- it's self-defense whether or not you are actually in danger, it's still self-defense if I was wrongly under the impression that I was in danger? Yes, but it depends a little bit. So we can divide that into whether or not your belief is reasonable or unreasonable. So if you reasonably believe that you're being threatened, even if you get it wrong, you won't have committed a crime. And we may think that's right, right? That we want ethically well-disposed people to not only act on their beliefs, but when their beliefs are the same beliefs anyone else should have, then we shouldn't be punishing them. On the other hand, if you have a belief and your belief is unreasonable, then jurisdictions are gonna treat you differently. So some are going to say you have no defense whatsoever, and others are going to say that you have a defense, but it just mitigates your punishment. So for example, instead of going to jail for murder, you might go to jail for manslaughter, which is a lesser offense, because you really did believe you were threatened, but your belief was unreasonable at the time. If you jump to the conclusion that you need to use deadly force so quickly, perhaps you are a danger. Right. And So we may think if you're unreasonable, it's kind of the equivalent of being a negligent or a reckless killer, but you're not quite as bad as someone who is purposefully or knowingly killing someone without any good reason whatsoever. Here we're talking about criminal law, which generally speaking is state law. What kind of variants are we seeing state by state? You alluded to a bit. So there are going to be some treatments that will be different state by state, for example, when you get it wrong. But the rough and ready formulation of self-defense is pretty consistent across states, which is that we are going to be looking for instances where the defendant reasonably believes that he is being threatened with imminent unlawful force, and his response is necessary and proportionate to that force. Professor, was that for prongs, in a sense, imminent, necessary, reasonable, and proportionate? Are those all four required for self-defense? Yes. So we might start by thinking about the necessity requirement. You aren't allowed to use force if you don't have to, right? So if, in fact, you're threatening me with a gun and I know that I can stop you either by punching you or by stabbing you, I am not allowed to use more force than I have to. So I have to punch you instead of stabbing you. 
The second requirement, which seems quite similar to it, is that I have to use proportionate force. So if you're going to punch me, I'm never allowed to use deadly force against you because the kind of force you're threatening me with is just non-deadly force, and it would be disproportionate to respond with deadly force. Now, you can think about how in real life that could be really nuanced and fine-grained, but jurisdictions are just generally going to split this into deadly force and non-deadly force. When somebody's threatening you with non-deadly, you can only respond with non-deadly. When they're threatening you with deadly force, which could be they're really going to kill you, threats of serious bodily injury, threats of ser very serious crimes, then and only then are you allowed to respond with deadly force. If someone's threatening you with a gun, that's always going to be justification for deadly force. Typically, if you see someone who's pointing a gun at you, it is going to be reasonable for you to believe that you are facing a threat of deadly force. Things can get actually a little bit tricky because sometimes we are authorized to use deadly force. So you're coming up and you're about to punch me and I opt to pull out a gun and point it at you. Now the question is, have I now used deadly force or non-deadly force? And the answer is, tell me what jurisdiction we're in and tell me what's in my head. Because in some jurisdictions, what the courts would say is, well, if the only thing Kim is trying to do is to deter Joel and say, look, you know, leave me alone. I'll escalate this if I need to. If you keep threatening me, I will escalate proportionately then I'm actually only using non-deadly force. And in other jurisdictions, they say, this is a gun. <laughs> of course it's a threat. Threats of deadly force are themselves deadly force. And so it can be very confusing to someone who's looking down the barrel of a gun, whether they are actually facing deadly or non-deadly force in those situations. Well, I'd like to go through this, you know, perhaps in a bit more detail because I find it fascinating. I'm sure we've all thought about the scenario where you're attacked or the scenario where someone perhaps breaks into your home, what one would do, what one should do, and what one could do may, may all be different, but, but let's talk about it in terms of what could be permitted under the self-defense doctrine. First off, let's talk about imminent. When we say imminent, is there a legal definition? So imminence really means what you would think it means, which is absolutely at the second, there is an attack. So the idea is not in 10 minutes, not retaliatory, but I absolutely need to use this force because force is coming at me at this second. And one thing that has happened in the law is that there's been some pushback against the imminence requirement in cases such as when battered women kill their sleeping abusers. And they say, well, I can't wait until that moment when he is about to kill me because I'm going to lose then. So instead, I should be able to attack or to defend myself when it is, in fact, immediately necessary. And it may be necessary for me to defend before the attack has actually crossed that line to basically being imminent. So the model penal code, which was drafted by the American Law Institute, actually uses an immediately necessary standard instead of an imminent standard. And some jurisdictions have followed suit to broaden the imminence requirement so that it's a little bit more fair for defenders who can't wait till that last moment. That's quite a, a powerful example. And I imagine under those cases, they would have to show that not only was it the only way that they could defend themselves, but the sleeping person also didn't present an opportunity for them to 
to run away and leave the home. That's absolutely right that the cases where someone says I was I reasonably believed I was about to be attacked by someone who's sleeping, right? Those are exactly some of those cases where they're going to they're going to lose. It was unreasonable. And you'll sometimes see then the move from murder to manslaughter to take into account that the person actually had unreasonable beliefs. But in some situations, it may be that the defender just cannot wait till that very last moment and has to act proactively and really and truly has no other outs, right? So if we know that in some situations, there's a greater opportunity for violence or greater propensity for violence when a woman tries to separate from her husband who's abusive, then in fact, she may realistically and correctly assess that she cannot wait until it's imminent. One of the requirements is that the belief must be reasonable. Is this, is this something where you know it when you see it? What qualifies as a reasonable assessment of deadly force? So this is the kind of thing that we're going to give to juries to ask, in this situation, would you likewise potentially come to the conclusion that you needed to use force at that moment to defend yourself? Right. And actually, the trickiest thing is what to instruct juries about sort of who the reasonable person is. Right. So the reasonable person seems to be this incredibly abstract construct. How much of the sort of characteristics of the defendant should you clothe the reasonable person with? So here's an easy case. If the defendant's blind, then, of course, we shouldn't ask the defendant to act as a sighted person would act because what kind of opportunities they have to assess proportionality or necessity may be different than somebody who can see everything. So when we're talking about the reasonable standard, it's sometimes referred to as the reasonable man standard, there's been, in certain cases, a push for when the defendant is a woman in the case, a reasonable woman standard. What is that? And and what are they trying to get at? So the idea is that this reasonable person standard, right, can't just be an abstract construct. The jury's going to say something about who is this person and what would this person have done, right? And and they're going to think a little bit about what they would have done and what they sort of generally expect people to do in the world. And the concern is that if you have this reasonable person and that person's nothing like the defendant, you can potentially hold the defendant to an unfair standard. So I'm five, one and a half, and I'm very slow when it comes to running. And so the idea of the question of whether the reasonable man could retreat or the reasonable man could only use his fists is a very different question than the question about whether it would be reasonable to expect the same things of me. And so in meeting the defendant where he or she is, we may think it's only fair to clothe this reasonable person with some of the characteristics of the defendant. The tricky question for law is exactly how many characteristics of the defendant do you clothe the reasonable person with? And when do you draw a line and say, well, that's actually not something that we want to attribute to the reasonable person? A sort of outlier example of that would be someone who's a paranoid schizophrenic. You wouldn't have a reasonable paranoid schizophrenic standard or you would lose your content to reasonableness altogether. I don't imagine the reasonable paranoid schizophrenic standard as being something definable either. Right. And in many places in law, exactly these kinds of things come up. And it's exactly those kinds of jury instructions where the jury is glaze over and commentators say, we can't be doing this. We've got to fix it. One of the things you mentioned, the proportionality requirement, I find personally very 
complex or difficult to get my head wrapped around because does it suggest if someone's coming at you and says, hey, Joel, I'm going to beat you up and the only way I could defend myself would be using deadly force, well, according to the law, I need to just take the beating. So that's right, that according to the law, you just need to take the beating. The theorist in me would say, well, look, when someone aggresses, they're going to forfeit rights against certain uses of force. And the question is, how many rights do you forfeit? If I go up to you and say, I'm gonna give you a paper cut, and the only way you're gonna stop me is to shoot me, it seems as though, given the teeny amount that I'm gonna harm you, that it would be disproportionate for you to push back and shoot me in that case. In the same way that we think proportionality is really important for criminal law, right? So if in fact, shoplifting is an incredibly pervasive crime, and the only way we could stop shoplifting is to incarcerate shoplifters for 10 years, we're still gonna think it's incredibly unfair to do that because shoplifters just don't deserve that much punishment, right? And so there's just this worry here that even if you're a little bit bad, right, for having threatened something small, that why should you give up all of your rights entirely? But it's you're absolutely right that we're then asking the innocent victim in some sense to bear the costs of the sort of small attack because there is nothing but disproportionate force to respond with. And we'll talk through this a bit more when we look at some of the examples, but I can certainly imagine how you described yourself as, I believe, 5'2 and not particularly fast. Yes. (laughs) I could imagine, no disrespect, Professor, but if you were attacking me, my reaction would be very different from you know, let's say a very large man who maybe had the same intent to, to cause minimal damage or, or simply to, uh, to let off some steam with, with a verbal abuse. But I might then be more justified to use force against the bigger person? Sure. So, I mean, let's, let's be careful. So if it's only going to be verbal abuse the whole time, then you're not allowed to use force against the person because it's, there's no unlawful force for you to respond to. So the fact that somebody is consistently insulting you, right? So really what they're then doing is issuing you a threat. And then the question is, you're trying to assess what the actual degree of that threat is. And you're going to have to take into account what that person potentially has the capacity to do. And so, yes, you're gonna be less frightened of me doing those kinds of things than somebody who is you know, bigger, taller, and stronger than I am, where that person might have greater capability and ability to therefore harm you. You just mentioned verbal threats, and a lot of times these may not actually lead to violence. If someone says, I'm gonna beat you to a pulp, how much weight can I give those words? Ask yourself, really, what would you have to do to decide whether or not you should be afraid at that moment, right? So if I say that to you right now, you would say, gosh, she's not even in the same state I'm in. She has no capacity to do this, right? So, so it's never just going to be the words. We're going to have an entire set of you know, contacts to know, is this actually something that is going to lead, remember, to an imminent use of unlawful force. So even if someone calls you on the phone and says this, no matter how big and strong they are, not an imminent use of unlawful force. But if in fact the person's in the same room, they seem very serious, 
there's a background that would lead you to believe that they actually mean it, then it may be reasonable for you to believe that at that moment, they are threatening you with imminent unlawful force, whether non-deadly force or deadly force. You know, I'm imagining this scenario where you say that to me, and perhaps then I, I should be, maybe I'd be waiting until you took a step towards me before I actually was starting to be scared. Imminence is just super tricky, right? Because to the extent that we want threats to be imminent, you really don't want even I'm gonna kill you, right? We want somebody who's who's like going to kill you. <laughs> but it's hard to, to give that any more content than the, you would know the difference between I'm about to be killed and there is a threat that will eventually progress to that particular moment where I have to act to prevent it. In these cases, the, the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. How does that apply to the affirmative defense that, yeah, maybe I did use, maybe I did fire my gun to protect myself, but I was scared. Does the state also need to prove the self-defense was not there beyond a reasonable doubt? They do. So it's not constitutionally mandated. Affirmative defenses can have the burden shifted to the defendant. So in many, many jurisdictions, a defendant claiming insanity has to prove he was insane by clear and convincing evidence. It's his job to convince the jury he was insane. It is constitutionally permissible, it's been decided by the Supreme Court, to shift the burden to the defendant on self-defense to prove it by a preponderance of the evidence that was the case. But every state now says the government has to prove, disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. So once the defendant comes forward with evidence that demonstrates self-defense might be you know, at work here, then the burden of persuasion shifts to the government. Now, initially you might think, well, do I like this? But if you take a step back, what we're talking about is the awesome power of the state to take one of its citizens and subject him or her to punishment. And subjecting him or her to punishment is incarcerating that person, particularly when we're talking about deadly force, which is hard treatment, suffering, stigma, censure. All of these implications come from punishment. And so when you ask, when should the state be able to do this to a citizen? We shouldn't just want it to apply when the state has said, well, you've maybe done something bad because you've hit someone or you've killed someone. But when the state has fully proven that what you did was wrongful. And in cases where what someone does is not wrongful, because they were really acting in self-defense, then the state shouldn't be able to lock them away. So a proof beyond a reasonable doubt standard protects all of us. It just so happens that some of the cases that tend to be the ones that capture the media or the popular imagination are cases where we're much more skeptical of the self-defense claim. And so we're wondering why it is that the state would bear this enormous burden. But it, it really does bottom out in what we think the state should have to prove before it gets to harm us. And we'll be discussing some of those contentious cases a little later in the conversation. When we're talking about self-defense, you said imminent threat. That imminent threat has to be to a person? So it has to be to a person 
unless it is the sort of crime that could justify the use of force under the statute. Those are typically gonna be to people, right? So it's going to be sexual assault, it's going to be kidnapping. Burglary is the one that probably gets trickiest because somebody could commit burglary in order to harm a person, or they could commit burglary in order to steal your things, right? And so if you're allowed to use deadly force against burglary, you're in some sense allowed to use deadly force to protect your things. Now, one reason to do that is because we may just wanna create laws that are rules that are gonna be over and under inclusive in certain ways. And instead of having juries in each case do a fact by fact determination of whether or not the defendant could have reasonably believed that in fact, she was being threatened with force, the argument is, well, at the time that someone breaks into your home, that's gonna be good enough reason as a sort of rule of thumb to justify the use of deadly force. It's not a clear cut line that it has to be a threat against a person. Right, and even your money or your life will typically justify the use of deadly force, even though in some sense, you could hand over your money. Ooh, explain that. So that is a tricky pocket that looks a little bit like stand your ground, right? This idea that if I can't defend with non-deadly force, why am I not allowed to defend at all? That there are times we say, you know what, if there, you don't have to surrender this thing to which you have a claim of right. And so jurisdictions that recognize that are doing something quite similar in a way to the stand your ground of you don't have to always opt for the lesser interest or to surrender something that is valuable to you. So in some states, if a criminal says, give me your wallet or I'll kill you, give me your wallet and I'll, I'll leave peacefully and you can go about your day, in some states, I could still use deadly force. That's right. How about self-defense when it's a threat to another person? Is that still, does that still justify the affirmative defense? So defense of others is a widely recognized affirmative defense as well. The trickiest thing that happens here is the question about whether or not when you're assessing the belief, you wanna stand in the shoes of the person you're protecting or the defendant's own shoes. And those can come apart in certain cases. So the famous case is a case called People Versus Young in New York, where two plainclothes police officers were attempting to effectuate an arrest and the person they were trying to arrest was fighting back. And the defendant came upon this and thought, I'm seeing two people beat up one person and intervened in favor of the person who was being arrested. So if you use a, your, you know, the defendant's own shoes test, then the defendant reasonably believed that he was helping someone else. But if you ask the question, was he really allowed to, given the, the perspective of the person he was protecting, then in fact, he wouldn't be permitted. And so jurisdictions actually divide on that, where I think the typical view is we should take the defendant's own shoes, should be the, the appropriate standard, because that's when we wanna ask, are you reasonably believing that you should intervene to protect someone else? Now let's take a break for our MCLE listeners earning credit the code for this interview is 071416. Again, that's 071416. And now back to the interview. Let's 
Let's talk about self-defense when perhaps you started the fight, or perhaps you were equally responsible for things coming to blows. Can you still use it as an affirmative defense? The law is gonna be very nuanced about this. Uh, the short answer is no, but it's gonna depend a little bit. So the, the important thing here is to break up two different kinds of ways that you could potentially forfeit your defensive rights. One is you're the initial aggressor, and the second is you provoked it, you're the provocateur. So initial aggressors, right, obviously can't use self-defense. If I go to punch you and you go to stop me, then I'm the bad guy, you're the good guy. I can't then say, wait, I'm, the, I'm being threatened with unlawful force, right? My force was unlawful and your force was lawful. Now, there are gonna be a couple tricks to this, right? So if I then retreat and I communicate, I'm no longer threatening you, then I can regain my defensive rights. If I threaten you with non-deadly force and you escalate to deadly force, then in some jurisdictions, I regain my defensive rights. That's interesting, Professor. So in that case, I say, Professor, I'm really upset with my grade. I'm going to come over there and uh, give you a paper cut. And you pull out a gun and say, well, you just stepped to me. Now you're going to meet your maker. Perhaps I can then have a real claim for, for self-defense, depending on the state. Yes because I have now done something wrong by so completely escalating. I'm not using the right kind of self-defense that's necessary and proportionate. Instead, I'm using disproportionate defense to what you threatened. That was initial aggressor. Provocateur, I suppose, what does it mean to be provoking the violence? So you can provoke the violence without starting the fight by getting someone really riled up or giving them reason to want to attack you. So if I go into a bar and I call your mother a whole bunch of names and continually insult you, then I have in some ways picked the fight. Now notice that in that case, you're still not allowed to attack me. You would still be acting impermissibly because I'm not actually threatening unlawful force. However, because I'm the one who got you riled up, I actually lose my right to defend against you. Professor, could you give me an example where self-defense was not permitted because the, the person was seen as being provocative? One thing that's really interesting about this is that courts get very confused about the difference between initial aggressors and provocateurs. So sometimes the kinds of things that they start looking for with provocation is actually initial aggress aggression. So some courts will say things like mere words can never be enough. But of course, mere words can never be enough to be an initial aggressor. But there's a totally separate question whether mere words could be enough to count as being a provocateur. So there was one case that held that mere words weren't enough. And the dissent said, well, wait a minute. What if there was a civil rights leader who had recently died and at his funeral, someone showed up and started shouting racial epithets at the crowd? Can't you imagine a case where the person intentionally and even with words got everyone so riled up that they then decided to use force against this person? And if the person does that, should they then have the right to self-defense? But 
It turns out to be very tricky for courts to figure out what this category is, how it relates to initial aggressors, and then how it relates to the entirely separate question of when the person who's the respondent should get a reduction from murder to manslaughter because of legally adequate provocation. Yeah, that does seem like a horrible hypothetical where, you know, someone basically tricks someone into justifying their deadly force. So in the hypothetical you're giving, it sounds like you're envisioning someone saying, hey, I'd like to kill a civil rights leader. Why don't I trick them into attempting to beat me up? And that's exactly how many statutes are framed in terms of I am intentionally poking at you in order for you to react so that I may defend against you. Right. So it is this in some ways creating your own defense. And then courts are saying, well, no, or actually statutes are saying you are not permitted to defend in those cases. Professor, I'd love to talk quickly about duty to retreat. I'm sure we could have a whole uh, sit down uh, for a whole hour on this topic. But what is the duty to retreat? And, and perhaps we could give a couple of different examples of, of states responses to it. The first thing to recognize is that there is not a duty to retreat before using non-deadly force. No jurisdiction says if somebody is threatening to punch you that you need to run away instead of stopping them by using force against them. Now, that traces back to what's been called the true man doctrine, which theorists are often critical of because it sounds like this very testosterone-laden, manly men stand up for themselves kind of view. But other scholars say this actually traces to the view from uh, Sir Matthew Hale that it's about innocent men. So the idea of a true man is an innocent man and the idea that right should not give way to wrong. So if in fact you're lawfully where you're entitled to be, you shouldn't have to leave that place rather than use at least non-deadly force. So there's no duty to retreat for non-deadly force. And there's also no duty to retreat within your home. So within your castle, the castle doctrine, if somebody attacks you, you do not have to run out of your house. You get to stay and defend yourself. And so that just leaves the question whether or not you need to retreat before using deadly force outside of your home. There, still, you only have this duty if you can do so with complete safety. So if turning and running away is going to actually make you more vulnerable to attack, you are not required to retreat. But you may not use deadly force if in fact you can retreat with complete safety. And then the the thing that of course amends that is stand your ground laws. So there's no duty to retreat for non-deadly force. There's no duty to retreat in your home the only place where you have to retreat is before you escalate to deadly force outside the home. Right, that's correct. Assuming that your jurisdiction does not have a stand your ground law because what the effect of stand your ground is to say, you also don't have a duty to retreat before using deadly force. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit talksonlaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.